on episode 519 of the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we meet Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson and discuss her book, Resume, the powerful reframed end the crash and burn cycle of food addiction. You can find the full show notes for this episode at 40plusfitnesspodcast.com forward slash 519. And a special note. We have changed the music for the podcast. Let me know what you think on our Facebook group at 40plusfitnesspodcast.com forward slash group or via email, alan at 40plusfitnesspodcast.com. If you decided you're ready to make a change to reclaim your health and fitness, the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast is here for you. Each week, we dive deep into health and fitness topics that affect those of us over 40. I'm Alan Meisner. I'm an NSAM certified personal trainer with specializations in corrective exercise, behavior change, and fitness nutrition, a FAI certified functional aging specialist, and an OTA level two online trainer. I'm joined each week by our co-host, Rachel Everett. She is an NASM certified personal trainer and a RRCA level one run coach. Let us be your coaches as you find your way on your health and fitness journey, all right? Let's go. When people ask me who I listen to to keep up with what it takes to get and stay fit as we age, to learn new techniques, and keep motivated, on the top of my list is Dr. Jonathan Sue, physical therapist, fitness expert, and the host of the Get Fit Guy podcast. It's part of the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, so in quick, smart episodes, Dr. Sue uses step-by-step explanations and scientific evidence to help you move through the world with ease and enjoyment. He covers practical topics like how stretching can improve cardiovascular health, exercises to help with knee pain, and how to get the most out of walking for exercise. And he'll share tips on how to avoid neck, back, and shoulder pain, ways to relieve post-exercise soreness, and what to eat before, during, and after your workout. Whether you want to begin an exercise routine and don't know where to start, or you're looking to shake things up, Dr. Sue's tips will help you reach your fitness goals and create a healthy, sustainable lifestyle. Listen to new episodes of the Get Fit Guy every Tuesday. Just search for Get Fit Guy wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, show of hands. Who is looking at 2022 as the year you finally lose the weight you've needed to lose for years? Great. Now, what are you doing different this time? Diets, new workout routines, resolutions, they just don't stick for most of us. So how are you going to feel in March if the same thing happens this year? Frustrated? Angry? Sad? I'd like to get you off that roller coaster and teach you how to win at weight loss. I've been coaching people online for over six years. You heard my credentials in the intro a couple of minutes ago. I'll help you lose weight and get fit so you can be the person you need to be for yourself and the people you love. Time is not on your side. If you're ready to win at weight loss, go to 40plusfitness.com forward slash win. Winning at weight loss takes more than a diet, more than an exercise program. It requires you to learn how to be a winner, and I'm really excited to give you those tools. At 40plusfitness.com forward slash win, you'll learn a bit about the six-week program I'm launching soon, very soon. So don't wait. Go to 40plusfitness.com forward slash win and win at weight loss. Raz, how you doing? Good, Alan. How are you today? 
I'm doing all right. It's been a been a hectic little week. Uh, last yeah. week uh, I had five interviews. Uh, this week I had um, Santa Claus duty. <laughs> dressing up as Santa Claus uh, at Lula's, and uh, so the kids came. And I think I think I've got another one on the agenda to do for the Rotary Club. Uh, and then both of our daughters got proposed to this week. <laughs> Is that right? Congratulations! How exciting! Yeah, so 20, 29, one of them just turned 29, the other is 28, mm-hmm. and she'll turn wow. 29 in July. So, yeah, they were getting around that age where I guess, you know, you, you start saying, I'm old enough that I'm not a kid anymore, and I'm young mm-hmm. enough that I can have kids. So, you know, kind of, they're right sure. in there. I think the sweet spot of they should at this point know themselves pretty well. So, um, sure. they they seem to like the guys they're with. and uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. That's important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. That'll that's change. So exciting. That, that'll change. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. What a wonderful time then for both of them. Very, very exciting. Congratulations to them both. How are you doing? Great. I'm doing good up here. Enjoying the up and down weather up here in Michigan, sunny days, a little bit of snow, a little bit of rain. You never know what you're going to get, but things are good. I just wrapped up a week of my marathon training plan, had a great week, good runs, it's really been a lot of fun. Well, good, good. You know, yeah. I, this is also a time of the year where you, you kind of have to watch your health because the changing mm-hmm. weather and everything else kind of beats up your immune system. You're inside yes. a bit more than you normally would be. So we're exposed to a little bit more of this and that. Obviously, when those, you know, the main virus, Corona going around, but cold and mm-hmm. flu season and a whole bit. So, so take care of yourself, eat well, get plenty of rest and, mm-hmm. um, you know, follow the basic protocols, wash your hands, sure. avoid sick people. <laughs> yes. Do the best you can. <laughs> do the best sure. you can with what you got. All right. right. You ready to have a talk with uh, Susan? Sure. Our guest today is the New York Times bestselling author of Brightline Eating and the official Brightline Eating cookbook. She is an adjunct associate professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester and an expert in the psychology of eating. She is president of the Institute for Sustainable Weight Loss and the founder and CEO of Brightline Eating Solutions, a company dedicated to helping people achieve long-term sustainable weight loss. Today, we're discussing her book, Resume, the powerful reframe to end the crash and burn cycle of food addiction. With no further ado, here's Dr. Susan Pierce-Thompson. Susan, welcome to 40 Plus Fitness. Alan, so good to be here with you. So your new book, Resume, The Powerful Reframe to End the Crash and Burn Cycle of Food Addiction. And um, while I, I scored a three out of your kind of your, your range of uh, how really? susceptible three, I am. Huh? Just a three with food. <laughs> There's probably yeah. some other things that I wouldn't score as well on. I think this is a really important concept because so many people think of food as just, well, just eat, just eat better, just eat better, eat less. And for a lot of people, their brain just doesn't work that way. And that's what I thought was really that's cool right. about your book is like, okay, no, let's, let's actually call it what it is. And even though clinically, the, I guess the association and all those folks, they don't want to call it that. Yet, yet <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna have to good, because it good, is right. Good. Then, yeah. then, right. So, so, but the whole point is, if we don't treat it the way it needs to be treated, we we don't get better. 
That's right. That's right. You can't treat a condition that you don't know that you have or that you refuse to believe that you have. So food addiction is very real. And that's, you know, one of the big thrusts of this book is actually the title of chapter two, Food Addiction is Real. Um, You know, and if we don't know that by now, sort of, hello, McFly, look around, right? Um, It's And the thing is that I think food addiction these days is a really, um, it's an intuitive, obvious thing for people, right? Either they experience it or they they see people they know who experience cravings, who experience repeated attempts to cut back with no lasting success, who experience unintended use, right? This like slippery slope where you intended to eat a little bit and then you find yourself eating more and more and more, um, who experience real consequences. I mean, 130,000 people in the United States this year had their, uh, or prior year, right? Had their leg amputated because of the way they were eating. 130,000 people. Now, if that's not shocking enough, 55% of them will have their second leg amputated within two years because having one leg amputated wasn't enough of a cue to cut back on sugar with their type two diabetes. Right. So if you don't think that that's sort of hazardous use, right. Or, or, uh, using beyond the beyond it just, it is right. Food is so addictive. So that's what this book is about. Uh, and it's about a different approach to managing the treatment or the recovery, or like, how do you lose weight and um, handle food addiction in a way that actually works and is actually sustainable. So that's what the book is about. And and this is not just some textbook. This is how you treat addiction. This is the way we've always treated addiction. You you've lived and breathed addiction, not just with food, but other things in your lives, in your life. And that's where you're coming from in this book. And I really appreciate the, uh, you know, opening up the vulnerability that you had to have a book like this where you're saying, no, I'm not some haughty toddy PhD <laughs> that's going to tell you how to beat addiction. I talk from experience of successes and failure. Yeah, totally. And that's, I think, why food addiction was so obvious to me. I mean, I, I knew food addiction was real when I was 21 because I'd gotten clean from crack cocaine and crystal meth. I got clean finally at the age of 20. I spent my teenage years doing drugs and progressing to harder and harder and harder drugs, culminating in dropping out of high school, prostitution, and just repeated cycles of going out to prostitute and then going into the crack house to smoke crack. So that's living like that without a place to live, you know, except the crack house is, um, you know, that's a pretty serious case of addiction. And when I got clean, you know, I never went back to drugs or alcohol after that moment. I just got clean. And Yet within a year, my weight had started to pack on and I was eating in a way that felt just looked, looked, felt, and was just like my drug addiction. And food was harder to kick, Alan. That's the creepy thing. Food was harder to kick. I was not able to just kick food the way I had drugs. I mean, obviously you have to eat to live, but but there were a lot of things that made food harder. And before I knew it, I was obese and really struggling with food and my weight has been the story of my life. I mean, I could say in a way I started using drugs at the age of 14 already to start to manage my food. I already had a weight problem. I already had a food problem. And that's why I turned to stimulants like crystal meth to manage my food and my weight problems. So it went all the way back for me. So yeah, I don't come to this. I do have an academic background. I have the PhD and all that. But that's not the high mountaintop from which I speak. I speak from the gutters of like, here I am eating a pint of ice cream with tears streaming down my face. Why am I doing this again? Uh, kind of place. So I get it at a visceral level. 
Yeah. And as I said, I, I went through and, and I looked at your susceptibility chart and, and took the quiz and I said, okay, um, I scored a three, which I, you know, I thought I was going to get that for food. That makes sense for me because I'm the just guy so who, people know on a scale from one to 10, <laughs> one 10, to 10 is highly, highly susceptible to food addiction. So it's a measure yeah. of how susceptible your brain is to food addiction. And Alan, you're just a three, which means food isn't your thing. Right. It either food. means you're not susceptible to addiction at all, or it means you might be susceptible to other addictions, but food isn't your thing. Right. And so, like I said, for me, it was, okay, if I just say, I'm, I'm not going to eat dessert, I don't eat dessert. And it's not like I leave that, that table after I said no to dessert and, and stop by the convenience store and buy some ice cream to eat at home in private. Because <laughs> right. I really, <laughs> I, right. I needed that sugar. I wanted that sugar. I was addicted to that sugar. I just said no, because that was the visual of me being at the dinner table and no one else wants dessert. Why is it so hard for us to beat food addiction? Food is the hardest addiction to kick. And I say that both as a hope to die addict in every way, but also clinically speaking, food has some very unique things about it. First of all, it is socially pushed like no other drug not just accepted, but pushed and pushed and pushed, which means when you're trying to, let's say, abstain from sugar, right? Good luck getting through Thanksgiving or Valentine's Day or whatever without people actually pushing it on you. So that's one challenge. You have to eat to live, which which you, you have to eat to live, but you don't have to eat donuts to live, right? <laughs> like So it this is one of the things that bright line eating does well is it helps people figure out the line between what you're eating and not eating right when you're an alcoholic when you're a crack addict the line is really clear don't drink right don't smoke crack uh it's not ambiguous generally speaking um i mean with alcohol it it you know benadryl or whatever there are some some slight you know nyquil whatever but generally speaking the line is pretty clear with food it's a minefield and i spent eight and a half years after I got clean from drugs, trying to figure out where the first bite was. I couldn't tell what I was eating that was tripping me up. Right. And finally I came to sugar and flour. That's what it seems to be. Uh, sugar and flour. It's, it's essentially the processed foods, but if you just abstain from sugar and flour, that's a good, that's a good demarcation point. But Alan, I could go on and, and probably I should You're. I just don't want to, you know, soliloquize here for 10 minutes on you, but there are a couple other really fascinating reasons why food is harder than any other drug. It is the hardest. It's the hardest. Please do. I want to get into this topic because I, I, again, I think if if you don't recognize the problem, you'll never find the solution. And if you think just forcing yourself to try something, another diet, another thing, and you don't get to the root cause of why this is so hard, then you, you, you're never going to solve the problem, particularly not solve it long-term. That's right. That's right. And here we are early January, right? All these people have made resolutions, you know, to lose weight is always the number one resolution. And we probably have people listening who've made that resolution before, right? Um, so here's, here's another reason why food is harder than anything else to kick. And it has to do with um, something that I think most people lump together with food addiction. But if you think about it, it's actually an entirely separate problem. And so to to illustrate, I have an analogy that I like to give. I call it the acne analogy. Imagine a universe. This is just a little thought experiment. Imagine a universe 
in which drinking alcohol over time caused acne to develop all over your skin. And not just acne, but really, really bad disfiguring acne. And not just really bad disfiguring acne, but fatal acne. Acne that that research suddenly showed would kill you 10, 15, maybe even 20 years before your time. So you learn this, you know this. And like people will, because alcohol is fun to party with, right? And relax with, you start to drink. So you start to drink. And at first, it's not a problem. You start to develop a little bit of acne, but it's not that bad. And over time, you drink more, you develop alcoholism, and the acne comes on hard and fast. So years go on, your body is now covered with really bad acne, and you know it's going to kill you before your time. You try quitting drinking over and over and over again. You finally succeed. You get sober. But the acne persists. You still have it. And now your job is to figure out what to do with this acne because it's, it's terribly unsightly. You don't want to live with it and it's going to kill you, you know, five or five, 10, 20 years before your time. So you go to search for a solution to the acne and you find one. There actually is only one solution to the acne and you start to adopt this solution, but it's the problem is it's got a side effect and the side effect is powerfully driving urges to drink alcohol. And so in your life, you get stuck in this loop of drinking alcohol, quitting drinking alcohol, trying to solve the acne problem, being driven back to drink alcohol. This is the relationship of food addiction and excess weight. The problem with excess weight is the brain fights prolonged weight loss by driving you to eat, even if you're still maintaining 100 or 200 extra pounds on your body. If you've lost weight over any significant period of time, your brain makes hormonal adjustments to force you to regain weight. And it drives you back to your food addiction. So this is the uh, maddening loop that people get stuck in. And that is, in my opinion, the biggest reason that food is the hardest addiction to kick. Yeah, the, the the hormones are really a big part of this because if you if you're constantly hungry, uh, then you're going to struggle to stay away from food, and then staying away from food <laughs> makes you constantly hungry. It's a it's totally. a pretty bad cycle. Yeah. Now, one of the things I really liked about your book was you didn't just jump into a, a diet or a program and say this is this is what you eat. These are your because you did talk about lines, but we're going to get to that. But the the first thing we have to get into when we're going to talk about this is that that self-work, that self-awareness, the deep and and, and not just this casual self-awareness of oh right. I I have a sugar addiction. It's 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 a much much deeper awareness of that at points in time uh and I don't mean from a schizophrenia perspective but we're different people in the fact that at some point in time the voice in our head is telling us oh go ahead and have that donut. Mm-hmm. And then there's another voice in our head, it's the controller that says no. You shouldn't have that. And they're, they might be going back and forth. And when they are, we, we find ourselves now obsessed with thoughts of food because we've yeah. told ourselves no. And we've also told ourselves yes. Can we talk a little bit about this parts work and how there's different voices and then kind of go into a couple of examples like the one I just started uh, about yeah. how that works dynamically within our brain? 
Yes, totally. Well, you know, just to say, first of all, this perspective on human beings um, is spreading rapidly because it's so effective. It's called Internal Family Systems, or IFS, um, and uh, uh, more easily called parts work, like you just referred to it as. Um, And what's so helpful about it is that it allows us to create change really rapidly by relating to these different sort of selves that we all seem to embody. And I'm not talking about, you know, dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. I'm talking about every healthy psyche has multiple parts to it. And this, this notion goes way back. Uh, there's, there's, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs, that have um, a parts dialogue on, on, you know, ancient tombs. Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato all talked about parts. Socrates said it best. Um, and actually, in, in the, it, it pertains to the food idea like, that you just mentioned. Socrates said, one mind cannot both want and not want at the same time. Therefore, we are all at least two. <laughs> and yeah. so just bringing up this idea that there's different parts of us. So in, in Brightline Eating, we invoke this parts um, notion to help people heal at really, really deep levels. Anyone really uh, who wants to be healthy, I would wager, even a three on the susceptibility scale of food addiction like you, Alan, uh, will have developed some version of these parts, the food indulger part and the food controller part. The food indulger says, Uh, some version of, hey, why not? It's a special occasion. It's an important day, or I deserve it, or I feel like eating or whatever, and um, gives us license to indulge a bit, right? Whatever that means to us. It's it's uh, the devil. It's the devil on this shoulder. Totally. An angel on this shoulder. And they're like, you totally. know, go ahead, come on, have a, no, no, no. You yeah. said you were going right. to do this. <laughs> and the angel is the food controller that's trying to manage it, right? The food manager. And we have different versions of it. Some people just have a healthy version. That's like, you don't want to do that because you'll feel a little yucky tomorrow morning. And you know, you're getting up early for a run, you know? Um, and some people have a really perfectionistic and wickedly uh, critical food controller that's, you know, really mean, um, or really, um, uh, sets up a high standard that's almost impossible to live to, right. Uh, super perfectionistic, but anyway, most of us have some version of that angel on the shoulder that's saying, no, no, no. And what, what, uh, we got get into in the book resume is we, uh, also introduce people to their authentic self, their highest self. I don't mean self like ego self. I mean, self as in grounded, centered self. You're, you know, you're there when you're calm, clear, connected, um, curious, compassionate, right? Like in that kind of place, um, you can make decisions for yourself that are really empowered and not really driven by either of those voices. I think that's a really interesting awareness from this perspective is you're not actually trying to create a world where you're always siding with the angel, with the food food controller. You're trying to settle into a truer version of yourself that um, that is actually a step back from the control, right? Anyway, yeah, it, it's, it's something we get into in the book a lot is what's the inner work you have to do in order to sort of transcend the war, the polarization between the food indulger and the food controller, because for people who are high on the food addiction susceptibility scale, it has become a full-on war. Yeah. And, and I think that's the key. If, if you, 
if you do this self-awareness work and you really think about it and it, and it blends into your resume process of, okay, why did this happen? What were the voices? Who was I talking to when I did this? And why did I react the way? Then, you know, it's like, oh, well, I, I was just being a food rebel because I've been so strict on myself for so long and drill sergeanty, if you will, that, okay, I just kind of popped a gasket and said, damn it, I'm having a piece of pizza. Uh, didn't kill me, didn't really throw me over the edge, but just enough to where I said, okay, maybe I just need to be kinder to myself instead right. of being so mean and rigid and, and thinking of myself as bad just for thinking about the pizza, you know, because it's creating right. that dynamic in yourself where yeah, the, either the rebel comes out and you have all these different um, uh, characters. Sort of archetypes. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, that you can totally. go through and say, who, who was I? when I made this decision, who was I, when this happened and it, it, you know, that every one of them, and I think this is really important that you said in the book, every one of them is actually looking out for your best interests. They're just doing it from their own paradigm. Right. Right. Totally. And, and Alan, this is the thing. So I'm on this, on the food addiction susceptibility scale. I'm a 10, <laughs> I'm a 10 and, and you know, that's not surprising, maybe hearing my addiction background. But here's the thing, Alan, is um, for people like me who are much higher on that scale, we're talking sevens, eights, nines, tens. Once you get into certain territory on that scale, it it might actually be true that the best path to peace, to food neutrality, where food thoughts aren't, you know, um, dominating your day, to physical health and weight loss, right? The best path to that might actually be a path that involves some form of abstinence, right? I abstain from sugar and flour because when I include them in my diet at all, uh, it's the sort of classic example of addiction. It's the same reason I don't try to smoke one cigarette. I tried that experiment again about four years ago and thus started about two years of trying to quit cigarettes, quitting, restarting again. I don't need to run the one cigarette experiment. It goes badly for me, right? And I just got to say the one cookie experiment goes just as badly. Um, so I don't run that experiment anymore. But the key is that I'm not doing it from a punishing food controller place. And so the genesis of this book was really how do we present a reframe on food recovery for people who've gotten trapped in a yo-yo dieting cycle or in a food addiction recovery cycle, because there's a lot of 12-step programs that talk about abstinence from certain foods as well. And people often get trapped in a relapse cycle. And um, I had gotten trapped in that cycle again myself after many, many years of, of peace and being in my bright body, which is like what I call sort of a right-sized body without carrying around all sorts of excess fat and stuff like that. I'd been there for a long time and then I got trapped again in a relapse cycle. And coming out of that, I've been out of that for a few years now, coming out of that, I, I got the awarenesses that I put into this book. It's a reframe on the perfectionistic um, tendencies that can naturally go along with an abstinence framework. But the, but the kicker is for some people, the abstinence is still necessary, right? It still doesn't mean that trying to eat the one piece of pizza for some people is going to be the right thing to do. Cause if you've run that experiment enough times, yeah. you know, that for you, it might not work. So this book is for people who are in that category and who need a reframe to get out of the crash and burn cycle. Cause it's very painful. Yeah. Because the quicker you get back on the road, the less damage you've done. And the, and, and I'm not gonna say the easier, but it just makes it, you feel more in control 
because you didn't completely crash. You're, you're, you're sort of easing yourself back into traffic and, and moving forward. Totally. And this book helps people um, who, are, who have brains more like mine um, to actually avoid the crash before it happens. From go, coming from a place of more healing, more self-compassion, um, it's it's really the shame and the and the self-flagellation on the way to picking up the the excess food, right? Uh, that accelerates the tragedy of it. And so, this book is sort of the prescription of getting off of that horrible cycle altogether. Now. One of the things you do in the book, which I think is really important, uh, I'm a big fan of commitment. I would not have been successful in changing my health and fitness if it didn't start with a commitment to myself. Yeah. But you've done something I think that's pretty special is you're looking at it from making a, a daily commitment. So when you wake up, because you, you do have that structure, you do have that abstinence mindset, you have these bright lines. And so you have right now four, probably you have more because there are others and we'll talk about those, but there's at least four base bright lines. And it's not, we're not talking about a line in the sand, you know, because a line in the sand, you can easily miss over and not see. You're talking about bright lines uh, for a daily commitment. You actually write out exactly what you're going to eat the next day, each day. And then you're able to report back to yourself on your commitment. Did I follow through with exactly what I told myself I should do today? Uh, can you talk a little bit about Brightline's eating and what the four core ones are and then go into some sure. of the others? Because I think those can be equally as important. Yeah. So in Brightline eating, there are four essential bright lines with the food and they, uh, two of them have to do with the substance addiction, right? No sugar, no flour. That's keeping the alcohol, the nicotine, the crack cocaine out of our system, right? No sugar, no flour. The other two handle the process addiction, the behavioral addiction to just eating. Um, and they are meals. So eating just meals, no grazing, no snacking. And typically we start people off three meals a day. There are some exceptions, like people who've had bariatric surgery recently can't eat that much food at one meal and that sort of thing. But generally speaking, it's three meals a day. Um, and then quantities. So we actually bound our food with a digital food scale. And, um, and I, yes, I weigh my food. And it's so funny because I just had a visitor who is a one on the susceptibility scale, literally a one. And he was visiting my house and he, he, we ate all our meals together for a few days. And he just kept talking about how he's like, okay, you told me you weighed your food but uh, you eat more than I do at every meal. This is like a full grown man, right? I, I, so we're weighing our food not to um, make for tiny quantities, but actually to make sure that we eat enough of a lot of foods because um, people who have a history of dieting typically will not eat enough at each meal unless you make them actually account for it. So um, yeah, those are the four bright lines. A bright line is a legal term originally. It just means a clear, unambiguous boundary that you just don't cross, right? So this is like the bright line that the alcoholic puts up for alcohol, right? I'm just not going to drink no matter what. Um, and then the other things I would count more as habits or behaviors or tools or whatever, like writing down your food the night before, that is a practice that people start when they start doing bright line eating. Um, and yes, committing, committing it right. Um, in some kind of way, I often recommend people even commit it to someone else, which can be very powerful. Like this is what I'm eating and then circle around the next 24 hours and say, yes, I ate only in exactly that. And here's what I'm eating tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 
it's very powerful. Well, that's, well, that's why we have a ceremony when we get married and we wear a ring when we get married. It's, you know, that's a, that's the public commitment. And you're like, okay, here I am. I'm committed to this relationship. And, and that's deeper meaning than you just saying to yourself before you go to bed, this is all I'm going to eat tomorrow. And no one else on earth knows. Uh, so it does hold you a little bit more accountable uh, to what you're doing, which again, if you need that support is really important. Now, Doctor, I define wellness as being the healthiest, fittest, and happiest you can be. What are three strategies or tactics to get and stay well? Oh, my gosh. Define your, say it again. You define wellness as being the healthiest. Healthiest, fittest, and happiest you can be. Happiest. Healthiest, fittest, happiest. In my mind, you have to have all three. (laughs) All right. All right. Healthiest, fittest, happiest. So... I'll just share from my expertise, right? I mean, because I'm sure people come on here and can say all kinds of things. I could, you know, anyone can sort of spout off on that. But from my vantage point, one of the big ones is going to be um, look at and honestly face the amount of food addiction that you actually have on board with the brain you've got right now. Like assess it. Like, Alan, you took the quiz, right? People should take the quiz Find out what kind of brain they've got because if you're a one, two, or three, it's a whole different ball game, right? You don't need to worry about a little bit of sugar. Um, you can have that recover really quickly, and absolutely, research shows that you know being ninety to ninety-five percent true to a food plan is enough, right? When you're higher on the scale, that little bit of sugar turns into more and more. And uh, also creates a lot of psychological chatter where you're thinking about what you've eaten or not eaten, whether you're on your plan or off your plan, how many miles, how many calories, how many pounds to burn off that thing that you just ate. And that's a state of mind that is not well. (laughs) That's not healthy, right? That's not happy. Um, It may or may not be fit, but it's definitely not healthy and it's not happy. So there's one right there. Like, take a look. And if people want to take the quiz, they can go to foodaddictionquiz.com, foodaddictionquiz.com. So, so acknowledge however much food addiction you have on board, because it really does change the landscape of the type of food approach that will work for you. If you're trying to be well, you're trying to be fit and you're trying to be healthy. Everyone who's trying to be fit knows that you can't out exercise a bad diet, right? And if the diet piece is the piece that keeps slipping in your wellness regimen, um, take a look at that. Um, and Alan, I, I don't know if we're going to have time to talk about it, but I just want to say, because this is a podcast for people over a certain age, right? Is yes. that sort of your o- theme? Over 40, yes. All right. Well, maybe let, let me just mention it now, if I may. Um, when you're over 40, um, and especially over 50, your diet impacts your body differently. And this is true whether you're male or female. And the reason is lowering estrogen. And as your estrogen becomes more probabilistic and lower, this is true for men too. Don't be fooled. It's not just men have testosterone, women have estrogen. Men and women have both. And as your estrogen goes down, um, you stop getting the uh, synergistic and protective effects it has on your insulin response. And that means that your body now responds very differently to the junk food that you might be eating. Um, you don't get away with it anymore. And that is the source of the weight creep in the middle that people experience past a certain age. Now we did a research study that we published in a peer reviewed scientific outlet that showed that doing bright line eating, which means eliminating sugar and flour, um, on our program in the first two months, 
people at every age category lost an equivalent amount of weight, which means that this type of approach to eating turned a 60-year-old woman's body into a 30- or 20-year-old woman's body, which is shocking. But just saying, the older you get, the more you need to acknowledge the amount that um, the degree to which addiction to certain processed foods might be playing, right? So there's that. The second thing I would say is um, really note your meal timing in relation to your circadian rhythm. So here's something that I used to experience. I'm a night owl by constitution, um, like wickedly so. Like left to my own devices, I'm up till three, four, five in the morning and I'm sleeping past noon every day. Since I started eating this way, which I, I did uh, 18 years ago, I've been eating this way now since I was 28 years old. I'm, I'm 47 now. It's, it's 18 years that I've been eating this way. I now go to bed and I'm, I'm like eyes drooping full melatonin at 9 p.m. So like last night I went to bed, I went to sleep at 8.39 p.m. And I was up easily at five. But I'm not that way constitutionally. The difference is I started changing my meal time. Since I started eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it turns out that the timing of your meal has as big or a bigger impact on your circadian rhythm as light exposure. So don't be fooled. Any, any calories you're putting into your system after dinner they're, they're mucking up your circadian rhythm. So really consider returning to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or at least watching your meal timing as it relates to your circadian rhythm. Um, that also had a huge impact on my mood. I, by giving up sugar and flour and changing my meal times the way I have, I used to have clinical depression really, really badly, and I don't have it anymore. Um, and then the third thing I think is um, make sure that you feel deeply supported and connected in life. Um, I used to teach, um, so I'm still a, a professor at the University of Rochester, um, but uh, I don't teach as much anymore because I do so much research and with this bright line eating thing. But um, I used to teach positive psychology at the college level. And a few years ago, researchers discovered that um, human connection is more potent for well being than the combination of diet and exercise put together. That's how important it is to not feel lonely. It's so important to be well-supported and connected. And if you think you're an introvert, just saying in, in the book, Resume, we've, we've got a, a category or a part called the isolator, right? Which is different than healthy alone time. Introverts and, and all people really need a healthy amount of alone time. Isolation is a different thing. Isolation is keeping yourself from support that would actually be helpful, and research shows that introverts and extroverts alike experience the same degree of uplift when they add something to their schedule, like lunch with a good friend once a week, right? So introverts just need fewer people and fewer superficial connections, but, but a few deep ones are absolutely necessary. So however you roll, just make sure that you would answer, oh, heck yeah, to a question like, right now in your life, are you feeling deeply supported and connected? Those are my three. Thank you, doctor. If someone wanted to learn more about you or learn more about the book, Resume, or your program, Bright Lines Eating, where would you like for me to send them? Um, I would say probably the first step would be to take that quiz. Go to foodaddictionquiz.com, um, but also Bright Line Eating. So it's B-R-I-G-H-T-L-I-N-E 
eating, E-A-T-I-N-G, brightlineeating.com. Um, and you can get started with Brightline Eating for just 20 bucks a month. So if you just want to give it a try and see, you were mentioning hunger earlier. We publish findings in the Journal of Nutrition and Weight Loss. Two years out, people haven't regained any of their weight. It's shocking, the results that we're getting around here. But also, within the first two months, people's hunger and food cravings have gone away completely on our program. On average, uh, literally hunger and craving levels down to below one and a half out of five, like little to no hunger or cravings anymore ever. So yeah, brightlineeating.com. People can give it a try for just 20 bucks a month. It's probably the best deal in weight loss. You can go to 40plusfitnesspodcast.com forward slash 519, and I'll be sure to have the links there. So Dr. Uh, Thompson, thank you so much for being a part of 40 Plus Fitness. Thank you so much, Alan. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back, Raz. Hey, Alan. What a really fascinating interview you had with Susan. You know, I'm really excited to get the chance to talk about food addiction because it's a something a little bit different than your standard dieting type situation. Yeah, you know, I've had I've had people on. Uh, we've we've talked about how food can be used as kind of this emotional bridge if you will, a best friend, a, 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 you know, something that takes the pain away. And then, and, mm -hmm. and I've never felt that compulsion with food as using mm -hmm. food, uh, to do that. Um, adrenaline, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'll do something crazy, like, you know, jump off a building or, or something yeah. like that. But <laughs> <laughs> no. no, thank you. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, yeah, there, there's a select certain number of people that are susceptible to food actually becoming a problem, mm -hmm. um, if they're using it for the wrong reasons. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, when I were talking before we got on here, you took the quiz that I took and yep. encouraged people to get out there and try it. Um, I was a three, you were a two and yep. it's this self-awareness thing, you know, how, what is your relationship with food? And mm -hmm. you really have to break that down to a core component of, what does food mean to me mm -hmm. now? Yeah. I know you and I, we, we think it's fuel. Yes. going to go for a run. It's fuel. <laughs> and, and, and it's fuel. That's right. um, and there's foods mm -hmm. I just love that I know I'll eat more of than I should or that I need. Um, mm -hmm. You know, especially when I can't get them all the time. And then now, then they're available. I, I kind of go a little bit overboard on it, but it's not that kind of food. It's I pretty much moved away from the sugars and the, and, and that. Um, but I never really was, I, I, I would say I might've been addicted to bread. Mm -hmm. and, and, but only reason I say that is I, when I went paleo the first time I would have dreams about bread. <laughs> wow. That's you know, interesting. Like, like smelling it, like in my sleep, like the, just uh -huh. someone was cooking bread and I could smell it in the oven and just dreaming about bread. And I, was, I thought, this mm -hmm. is so weird. I quit bread a week ago and I'm dreaming about bread. Um, so, you know, maybe there was a little something there with bread. Uh, I don't know, but, uh, you know, you talk a little bit about from your experience, because again, you, you're two. So that's mm -hmm. not how you look at food. No. Yeah. Like you said, I definitely look at food as fuel. Um, and I'm aware of the addictive nature of my 
personality. My and I put, I say potential addictive nature. When I was a kid, um, my grandmother, who I love and adore and respect, um, and was crushed when she died from breast cancer, she was a smoker. And whenever we went to her house, her curtains and her uh, couches and the blankets on her couch, everything reeked of cigarette smoke. When we drove in a car. Um, she would smoke in the car. And even in the dead of winter, it could be 20 below. I just needed that little bit of window down so I could get some fresh air to get some relief. That smell was just so overpowering and influential to me that I knew I would never want to smoke ever in all of my life. And I, to this day, I've never even tried cigarettes or any other thing that you might smoke. I've never done it because I was so repulsed by that. But it's but people who smoke it's an addiction. It's like Susan mentioned, she had a more serious drug addiction than cigarettes, but there, there is an addictive part to that whole thing. And I can see how food can become similar, whether you're physically in need of having that sugar rush, because you know, carbs and sugar can be very addicting, or is it more her personality? Like Susan mentioned, she had a drug addiction. She, she replaced that compulsion with food. So there's something to that personality component as well. Um, but being aware of that, having that self-awareness, like you mentioned, food never crossed my radar as being something that I was compelled to have. I don't hide food in my pantry and eat it you know, later in the closet. Although the one thing I will admit to is coffee. If anybody knows me, I am a definite coffee addict. I have it every day. But even with, even with that, I know that I don't have to have it to live. If I woke up tomorrow and was camping, like when I go to Isle Royal next year and I can't have my Keurig coffee pot with me, I know I could go a couple of days without having it. I'll know I'll have some consequences, but you know, it's, it's a different type of addiction than I think sugar or flour is like Susan had mentioned. Yeah. And we've had guests on, um, you know, Rosie, uh, was on and mm -hmm. the woman, Cheryl, I mean, uh, was it Sharon. So we've had a couple, I've had a couple guests on that really had emotional, deep, deep issues with food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the way they thought about their body, the way they thought about their food. And it was that, it was that relationship with food mm -hmm. that was the problem. And so, you know, as you go through self-awareness uh, of your journey in health and fitness, it's, it's critical for you to have that conversation with yourself and say, what kind of relationship do I have with food? Mm -hmm. And, you know, why, why would I feel compelled if I went to the grocery store to go down the cookie aisle <laughs> when I know that the cookie aisle is just not going to serve me in what I need for what I'm trying to do. And so mm -hmm. as you look at that, if you feel compelled or, or take, take the test, it probably gave you some information yeah. there, but most of us, if we take a moment and we're honest, we can say I am a moderation person or mm -hmm. I'm an all or none person. And mm -hmm. I can tell you, I am an all or none person. Even though I mm -hmm. scored very low on that on that test, it was really because it was just related to food. And I can say mm -hmm. no to any food, and mm -hmm. I can have a little of something and then not have any more. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, there are other things that you know I'm all or none, and mm -hmm. when it's all, I mean all, um, <laughs> until it's all gone. You know that kind of thing. Um, 
and maybe I used to be uh, with that. Like I, I talked about Girl Scout cookies and, you know, I, I'd buy the Thin Mints and the box would be gone the first day. Um, <laughs> yep. You know, even if I was trying to be good, you know, I'd, I'd go to the grocery and go to the freezer because we'd put them in the freezer and I would take a serving, which I think was like three cookies and I'd eat mm-hmm. a serving. And, you know, then I'd go sit down, I'd eat the three cookies, I'd get back up, I'd walk there, I'd get another three cookies and go sit down. And then eventually <laughs> I'm just standing in the freezer sure. eating the rest of the cookies. Wrap them up. <laughs> yep. Finish it off. Can't, you know? can't eat any if they're not there. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and so I had to come up with some strategies that worked for Girl Scout cookies until it was just a point where I no longer thought of Girl Scout cookies as something that I needed. I mm-hmm. actually would give the Girl Scout money and not take the cookies. Sure. That's you wonderful. know, I just say, okay, you're trying to raise money. I get it. But back then, okay, again, to kind of date this is a box of cookies was like two fifty. Someone was telling me the other day they're like five bucks. But yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know because yeah. I I don't stop by the the booth anymore when I if I came out of a grocery store in the United States uh, in February, which I haven't done in three years. But um, you know, you you walk by, they're they're there, and want some cookies, and I here's two fifty. No, I'm just buy yourself a box or give a box away or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I just move on. So I just say, yeah, this is a very important concept and mm-hmm. that self-awareness is critical. Otherwise you're setting yourself up to fail because this mm-hmm. stuff is everywhere. It the, is The flour and the sugar is mm-hmm. in every single thing out there. It's just almost impossible to avoid and there are going to be times when you go in and you're like, okay, I, I want something to eat. And it's, what's this? And what, how's it prepared? It's breaded. It's like, okay, can you make it not breaded? You know, and, and sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. But then even then there's sugar in the, the sauce or there's this and that. So just, it's really, really hard to avoid these foods. And if they trigger you, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, Susan said, you know, she tried to smoke a cigarette, just one. And then boom, she was right back to smoking. And it was just really, she knows Mm -hmm. she can't even have a little bit or she's going to go off. And if you're, if that's you, then you have to be honest with yourself and yeah, cold Turkey, you're out. Mm -hmm. Um, there is no moderation. There is no trying it. There is no detour, uh, with this stuff. It's, it's all or none. And you have to get that into your head. If you care about your health and fitness. Susan mentioned the word abstinence, and I just want to keep that word in bold print right front and center, because for some people, abstinence is absolutely necessary. And for her, with her type of an addiction, personality or physical addiction to food, she cannot allow herself a bite of sugar or a bite of flour, because that could send her back down the spiral to where she was, you know, overweight and unhappy. And I think that there are a lot of people out there that need to come to terms with that word abstinence, you know, for people like you or me, moderation, we can live with that. We can have a couple Girl Scout cookies and then wait until next season when Girl Scout cookies are sold again. But for people who have more of an addictive personality or that physical need for food, chips are in the grocery store every day. Cookies are in the grocery store every day. And sometimes abstinence would be the tool, the main tool to to break that habit. I just want to keep that front and center. And there's a reason, you know, in these grocery stores, in these convenience stores, that things are where they are. 
You know, mm-hmm. if you want to walk down uh, to the milk aisle, you're probably going to have to walk through an aisle that's going to have sugar laden foods or chips or <laughs> something. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you're going to turn around when you stop to buy something like bottled water and, and there it, there's the chips. And it's literally set up that way. You get up to the counter and there's on both sides, candy lining oh, both gosh. rows, um, <laughs> and, you know, and, mm-hmm. but it's done on purpose. It, it, you know, they study that stuff. They literally study the traffic flow and, and, and optimize their sales. They're putting that stuff in your way. So you mm-hmm. see it and impulse, and then you buy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to know yourself. You have to go back to your commitment. And mm-hmm. if you do that, then yes, abstinence. And it's, it's that point of saying, you know, abstinence is the only way. And then you have that relationship with yourself and you have to say, okay, I'm not going to cheat. And you wouldn't cheat on your relationship. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't say, oh, that person looks really fine. I'm going to go do that. No, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you mm-hmm. don't. Uh, but you have to have the same self-love. You have to have the safe, same self-awareness and not mm-hmm. put yourself in those situations uh, if you don't need to be. And That's most right. of us, if we're trying to lose weight, trying to get more fit, we don't need that stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. You said the other word that I would like to highlight and bold, and that's commitment. And whether you're committed to moderation or committed to abstinence or whatever it is, just be committed to yourself for sure and, and make the best choices for you. All right, Rich. I'll talk yeah. to you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye now. Next time on the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we meet Dr. Emily Willingham and discuss her book, The Tailored Brain. Until then, have a happy and healthy week.